Hi, I'm Sarah. And I'm Amy. We both grew up with dads who drank too much. So we are both adult children of alcoholics. And we're here to talk about our experiences using honesty and some pretty dark humour. We'll be chatting to a variety of people affected by alcohol addiction. Our dads were both called Steve and they're both dead now, which means we can finally have the conversations we've wanted to. You had to go there already, didn't you? <laughs> we've had a lot of experiences between us and we are both really passionate about helping other people. So sit back, relax and join us with Sarah and Amy, Children of Alcoholics podcast. Hello and welcome to our first podcast. It's exciting. It is, isn't it? Yeah. It's, um, we've just recorded our intros and outros and it's been a bit of a, what would you say, Amy? Challenge? Challenging. Challenging. I mean, as a child of an alcoholic who was always told they were being overdramatic, this whole podcast thing is really playing to my strengths. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did actually call you dramatic at one point, didn't I? <laughs> and then we both just started really laughing. <laughs> Oh, we've heard that before. <laughs> um, so welcome, welcome. Um, we're absolutely thrilled to be doing this. Um, we are both COAs, children of alcoholics, and we felt there's a need to talk about this openly from the other side, from the other perspective. Um, we're going to be talking to a variety of people. So people living with addiction, people living in sobriety, people affected by addiction um, and what it's like being that family member and that loved one. Um, our theme for today's podcast is, drumroll, Amy? Well, I think first we're going to introduce ourselves and then we're going to talk about the family secrets, how the addiction in our homes that we grew up with wasn't necessarily discussed or um, addressed in any way when we were younger. That's right. Yeah. Um, a big part of that for me is denial as well. The denial and how that contributed to secrecy, really. So on that note, I'm Sarah Drage. I am um child of an alcoholic. Loved my dad dearly. Unfortunately, we lost him in 2017 um, after an excessive binge with a litre of vodka a day that we knew of towards the end. Um and it consequently ended with us switching off his life support machine. Um, and throughout this season of podcasts, we'll talk about all the emotions that are associated with that. Um, but I was really affected, really affected. And I don't think I gave myself enough credit for just how much it affected me. I don't know about you, Amy, but I always used to feel as though I'm not the one in addiction Therefore, I shouldn't be talking about this. I shouldn't be um, affected by it. It's not the. It's not affecting me directly, but it was indirectly. Can you yeah, relate to that? I, yeah, I think I can. So um, I'm Amy, and I am also the child of an alcoholic. My dad died in 2020 after um, many, many years of really active addiction. Um. Yes, I would say I just didn't feel I could have those conversations when he was alive because he did deny he had a problem. Um, and actually, I was just really angry and just a bit over it towards the end, I think. 
And so I didn't really talk about it because it was just very normal for me mm. and I just dealt with it in my own way. So I didn't feel the need to talk about it or ask for help at the time. And also I felt quite helpless in it in that if I was going to ask for help, he, I didn't feel he would change by me asking for help. And I didn't feel that I, I didn't know that I could have help as a standalone thing. Yeah. I always thought help looks like making my dad better. I didn't realise yeah. that help actually looked like me understanding what it was like and acknowledging that, a, you know, COA is a thing. Oh, I absolutely relate to this so much you've just said there. And I think as well, you take on that responsibility trying to fix them and you're trying to do that whilst, I mean, my dad was in denial, never admitted um, that he was an alcoholic. As far as he was concerned, that was a dirty word. Didn't want to talk about it. Um, so he was in denial, which then questioned my own sanity because I kept thinking well what if I am being really dramatic what if I there isn't a problem here and I'm making something making a big deal about something that isn't necessarily real um and then obviously you can't talk about it to anybody because I felt such a disloyalty if I was to go and speak to somebody whether it was a therapist or whether it was a family member or a friend I felt like I was being disloyal to my dad so you're dealing with everything all of those emotions, all of those feelings um, on your own? Yeah, I certainly wouldn't have when I was younger. I would not have openly told peers, oh, my dad's an alcoholic. And I guess there's two reasons for that. One, when I was much younger, I didn't know he was an alcoholic because he didn't fit the stigma perception of what an alcoholic looked like he wasn't sitting on a park bench he wasn't you know he was holding down a job and he was supporting a family and I didn't really have the vocabulary or the you know kind of the life experience to see what was happening and then as I got older I did used to tell people I did tell people um you know and certainly when I got married a lot of the day was predicated around the fact that my dad would not be in a great state by mm. the time we'd finished the meal. So we did the speeches before the meal and it was all actually a lot of effort was put into maintaining the status quo on my wedding day around him. But I still was never, I never sort of said, can you not drink that day? Because it was just a given. Yeah. And then as I got older and had my own kids, I would sort of say to people, oh, no, my dad's an alcoholic, but almost a bit piss-takey and a bit eye-rolly. Yeah. I never fully admitted what that looked like. And actually, I've only done that since he's been gone. I've actually yeah. kind of had conversations around, oh, well, you know, I, had to, I used to have to do this or I used mm. to have to do that. Because it's not... I never want to use the word normal. I remember having some therapy and... <laughs> yeah, what is normal? <laughs> well, that's it. Um, I'm not... Well, yeah, I had really mixed feelings about doing it. And I got told I was normalising a situation that wasn't normal. Okay. And it was normal for me. Yeah, I get that. So I wasn't normalising it in, in that I didn't know any differently. So... You're living in it. You become complacent. Yeah. 
You don't know any different. And a lot of the things that I felt were all internal. So, you know, kind of hypervigilance. And again, I always used to sort of take the piss and go, well, I can't phone my dad after five o'clock or I can't phone my dad on a Sunday or... Mm. You know, my brother and I would just text each other going, oh, God, have you heard from him this week? Or have you, you know? Yeah, I think the, do you know, I relate again to so much you've said, especially planning ahead with the wedding. I mean, I used to risk assess every single event. Every family event would almost be like I'd be completing some kind of risk assessment and lecturing my dad prior to any event, like... Telling him to behave. I didn't realise that. I really did that because I always felt that was a bit... I almost didn't want to draw attention to it. And I felt like if I'd have said to him, can you make sure you behave today or can you make sure you do this? He would not have reacted very well to that. Um, Other people, I think, used to say it, but again, a bit tongue-in-cheek because you never really knew which way it was going to go. And I did... One of my cousins got married. He was there. And then I had another person come over to me and say well your dad's in a dreadful state I just thought it's not my problem why are you putting that on me it's um again you become so complacent with this situation that becomes our normal it just becomes our everyday life and you become so used to it that sometimes you one think that everybody maybe goes through it or you hide it, it's this big secret, you know deep down something wrong is at hand and this isn't normal, but you don't want to talk about it to anybody. You don't want to make other people feel awkward. You don't want to upset or trigger anybody else and you don't want to embarrass them. I didn't want to embarrass my dad. I certainly didn't want to embarrass my dad or shine a light onto um, his addiction or label him. I know labels, I mean... It's such a tricky, awkward subject to talk about um, because it's the choice of language and the choice of wording that we used. But my dad hated the term alcoholic. He certainly weren't going to identify as, uh, identify as an alcoholic. He was, in all sense of the word. That's what he was. And I identify as that child of an alcoholic. That was my experience. Um, my dad was physically dependent on alcohol. There was no way he could come off of it alone. Um, and we just didn't understand it. We didn't understand what he was going through, what we were going through. And you're so preoccupied with what everybody else thinks and the embarrassment and the shame it brings that you just want to pretend everything is just absolutely fine. It's normal. So we're going to joke about it. We're going to laugh it off. We're going to, um, yeah, it's, it's, um, I feel like there's so much, isn't there? Yeah. There's so much that we can talk about. My and dad would never have identified as an alcoholic. He would have had a really negative response to that label mm. on him. He would never have used it to describe himself, I don't think. And he would have kind of looked down on somebody who he perceived to be an alcoholic. But yeah. exactly as you've said, physically, mentally, he was absolutely dependent. So, mm. and I fully identify with the label child of an alcoholic because to me that's what he was but then when he died we found so much around giving up or his like his always his line was oh I've got always I've got a handle on it I'm gonna cut down 
I'll stop tomorrow. My well, no, he never said he would stop, but it was always, I'm, I, yeah, I know, no, I know what I'm doing and I'm yeah. doing this. I can manage it myself. If I wanted to stop tomorrow, I could stop tomorrow. Yeah. My dad used to say. Yeah. But when he died, we found books about quitting drinking. We found diary, diaries and diaries where he'd diligently written how much he was drinking. So we knew. Funny enough, you say that, we checked my dad's Google history on his tablet and it was symptoms of an alcoholic. So it's like he knew, but he weren't going to admit to it. He weren't going to talk about it. When my dad was towards the end of his life, he had so many, now now I know, very obvious signs of, of end-of-life liver failure. And um, he was masking them with other things. And he would say to me, I've got this or I've got that. Completely. He, being an alcoholic and it being anything to do with his liver was completely out of the question as far as he was concerned. So he was brushing that under the carpet and blaming it on other things. And it was so glaringly obvious now. Um, but he knew. Yeah. He knew. Deep down, he knew. But this secrecy boils down to stigma. And you know me, like, you know that I advocate openly about the stigma attached to it. And I think it's such a dangerous stigma because it prevents it prevents the person going through the addiction from accessing help, but it also prevents their loved ones. Because we've spoken about denial, we've spoken about the secrecy, we've spoken about the fear of embarrassing them. All of that really ultimately boils down to the stigma attached to it. We don't want to embarrass them. We don't want they don't want that label because of the stigma that's associated with that label. Therefore, everyone brushes it under the carpet, pretend it's not happening until, in our situation, sadly, we couldn't do that anymore because it caught up with them. It's too late. I would agree with that. So the last couple of things my dad had looked at on his Amazon account was um, books about children of alcoholics. (laughs) Oh, my God, that makes me want to cry. (laughs) So he had obviously really identified with the fact that that's how um, my brother and I... So he knew. He totally knew. But he'd also been Googling symptoms of um, bowel cancer because he was having quite a lot of symptoms, which, again, now we understand Mm. were completely compatible with um, the various sort of medical things he had going on. And But always looking for a reason. There was always a reason for an illness or a decline, and it was never, ever to do with drinking. Never. Oh my God, exactly the same with my dad. It was always something else. It was never, do you know, this sounds so ridiculous. My dad blamed all of his symptoms on an old tooth filling. (laughs) (laughs) He legit told me he had mercury poisoning. He blamed it all on, and in fact, my husband took him to the dentist where my dad was arguing, he was drunk, arguing with the dentist that he had mercury poisoning. And all of his symptoms were nothing to do with the fact that he had late-stage liver disease. It was mercury poisoning because he didn't want to admit that it was the alcohol. And even my dad, two weeks before he died, we had some real deep conversations on the phone and I think he knew something bad was happening because he kept crying, he was very emotional. And he said to me, he said, I know I'm the reason for your anxiety. I know my drinking's caused it. But there were little there were little patches of conversations we'd have where we'd I'd think, oh, it's a breakthrough. It's a breakthrough. It's happening. He's going to admit that he needs help. And then 
it would almost retract mm. and it would be blamed on something else. And it was that lack of empowerment and that lack of confidence for him to openly say, I need help. I have a drink problem. Please help me. But he was blaming it on everything else because there's such a prevalent stigma. And you know what? I really, really understood why he felt like that when he was in hospital. So with my dad, we ended up, um, my sister found him partially conscious. We managed to get him to a hospital um, and he was deteriorated very quickly. But when you check them into A&E and you tell them what the problem is, it's not exactly discreet. There's, lo there's loads of other people waiting in the waiting room and the amount of people rolling their eyes, um, tutting, shaking their heads... And you think, oh, God, yeah, that's why. That's why he's embarrassed. It's like that he's wasting time. He's wasting NHS time. He even said that. I begged him to go to hospital three days prior. And he said, I don't want to waste the doctor's time. I've done this to myself. And I'll get out of this myself. And, yeah, it deteriorated so quickly. But when he did die, the amount of comments we had from people saying, your dad did this to himself... It was self-inflicted and he only had himself to blame. That made me so mad. It made me mad with them. It made me mad with myself because I used to say that stuff to my dad. I used to say, Dad, you're doing it to yourself. You're self-inflicting this. I was buying into that stigma. There's a stigma. There's a heavy stigma around it. Um, and that made me just so cross because I would think that is why I didn't ask for help because people are saying things like this. People are... Um, judging and discriminating and stereotyping and my dad didn't want to fit that stereotype so he chose to suffer in silence but they were both researching yeah and and that's heartbreaking because neither of our dads felt like they had the right to go and seek help I don't know yeah I think it was possibly because he didn't identify as an alcoholic but also where were you going to go? Like he'd had a couple of inpatient hospital stays and mm -hmm. had been medically detoxed. But that was really the end of that, as in he was discharged after five, six weeks with a different um, medical issue, had been medically detoxed there. But then where where was the signposting after that? Yeah. And also, for a guy in his 60s on his own... His whole life revolved around his social life and his bowls club and his friends at the pub. To have six weeks in hospital and then come out and not be able to do any of those things was probably too much. Mm. And the willpower and the dedication he would have had to have given not drinking but still have a social life, and he was an incredibly social person... It was too much. So, so my dad was, when he was drinking, he was a bit of an introvert. Um, putting my dad in a social situation was just um, really anxiety-inducing for him. He never used to be like that. Um, but the trauma and the anxiety and the depression and the addiction just took a hold. What was it like for you as a child growing up with him and the secrets around it? Well, I don't think there was a secret around it growing up because 
he was just what he was and everybody loved him. I mean, he was hilarious and he was really intelligent and he was absolutely the life and soul of the party, I realise now, because he was drunk most of the time. Um, And he just had this massive booming laugh and, yeah, really, really sociable. And I just thought he was great. I just thought he was absolutely brilliant. I just thought he was the best. Why would you not want that as your dad? Like, you know, he was kind of a dapper dresser. He was a good-looking guy. He had a great job. Um, You know, we had a nice house. All of those things. And he was fun. And then, so for me growing up, brilliant. Oh, I had the opposite experience. See, for my dad, when my dad was drunk, we knew he was drunk. We knew that something was amiss. My dad wasn't a fun drunk. My dad would go very aggressive, very, his tone of voice would change. I was fine-tuned to it. My sisters were fine-tuned to it. We were all fine-tuned to when Dad had been drinking. Didn't understand as a child that it was the alcohol. Just thought Dad had his funny ways. Um, We didn't realise we were craving for this normal Dad, but normal. what we meant by normal was sober. We just didn't really understand it at the time. Um, I used to think my Dad was strange. He'd say weird funny things and a funny tone of voice and I would always be um justifying his behavior or defending him there'd be times at family events where he'd disappear and go and sit in the car people would be like why is he sitting in the car what's wrong with him is he all right and I'd make up an excuse oh he's not feeling very well he's got a headache or it it was because now I know it was because um he probably had social anxiety or he probably wanted to drink more than what he was able to. Um, there was many times he'd walk out of somewhere and because he needed a drink, he was shaking. My dad, he'd get the shakes if he hadn't, um, if he couldn't drink enough or drink the amount he needed to. So that he had really funny ways that I was always trying to brush over or justify or defend. Um, didn't understand that he was an active addiction, didn't understand the effects of being addicted to alcohol and what that meant for his body. Um, and I always used to beg him to just snap out of it. It's really as though, funny, as isn't it? So it was that easy. So, I mean, there were so many times I'd lecture him before any big family event as well. Dad, please act normal. I see, I'd never have done that as a kid because I knew if Steve was going, it was going to be great fun. And I enjoyed that. I do remember like he would, we would drive, you know, like when your kids and your parents are going out and they'd put us in the back of the car with a sleeping bag and we knew mm, that we'd come yeah. home in that. And he'd always drive us there and my mum would always drive us back and he would be snoring in the front. But he was a really good natured mm. drunk. But then looking back, there are things. So I remember I used to be absolutely, I used to wake up in the night and I'd be absolutely terrified that... Um, there was a bear in the house and it was such a vivid thing. And I used to laugh. To say a bear? A bear. As in like? As in a big brown bear. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> clearly. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I used to lay rigid and I had this whole plan about when the bear came into the room, I would hide under the covers and I wouldn't move. And then I had this whole thing of actually I'd just let the bear eat me because <laughs> then he would not eat my brother and things. How well, old was you, 18? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Very little. And I'm genuinely, I'm laughing now because it is really stupid. But I was terrified. And it wasn't. It was my dad snoring when he was drunk. So this whole yeah. bear thing that I was so really, really scared of yeah. was him snoring. So yeah. I remember waking now up. Now I feel once. really bad because no. I just made a really... <laughs> took the piss out of my childhood. So. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the last podcast. Oh. Or I remember waking up. My mum tells this story about my brother and I waking up. And I was saying, we've been burgled. They've stolen the carpet. <laughs> and basically, my dad had got pissed, thrown up over the bathroom carpet and decided in his infinite wisdom that the quickest and simplest solution was to just rip it off the gripper rods, roll it up and throw it out of a window. <laughs> Clearly, that's not oh, normal. No. But it just became another funny story and a catalogue of funny stories. I know what you mean. Because actually. they weren't... And it becomes normal to you. Oh, totally. That's your normal. Yeah. And if I'd have gone and told anyone else in the family or kind of family friends what happened, they would have all just laughed because that was just another funny story in the life of Steve. Such a serious thing, isn't it? To well, go it is. And to just... But then I think it was the... And I think their social circle, they were all big drinkers. But it's just that he didn't slow down or stop mm. and any of them could have gone in that direction because it doesn't you know doesn't discriminate doesn't discriminate and any one of those people who were at any of those parties their path could have mm. taken that turn but then I stopped living with my dad when I was about 12 12 13 right okay and I would say it was at that point I became very vigilant about, I would say at that point, his his ability to drink and to socialise and to go out increased because he wasn't at home with his family anymore. Right, okay. And it was around that time that he started having accidents, drinking-related accidents, cracking his head open on a curb because he fell over, falling out of a train, falling off the side of a boat. Again, kind of dressed like he'd just turn up with sort of these injuries and all sustained through drinking and I don't know whether it's I don't, I don't think it ever bothered me I'd like to say it didn't bother me having separated parents but clearly it did because at that point my vigilance around my dad became really heightened because I couldn't control what he was doing and I didn't know if he was home safely the way I had known when he lived <laughs> with us um and that was where I became much more attuned to sort of the tone of his voice. Yes. And checking yeah. in on him every day, phoning his office, waiting for him to answer the phone and then hanging up. Is that intuitive and your your sensitivity to any kind of external environmental factor massively increases? Yeah. We were quite, in a way then, for us, maybe my dad being an introvert kept him safe because he never wanted to leave the house. For us, it would be, we'd know dad's in one of his moods. That's what we referred my dad's drunken moods to would be he's in one of his moods. 
um, the curtains would be drawn. He'd be asleep, passed out on the sofa. And that snore you're talking about, completely relate to. It's mm. like, it right. sounds like a bear. <laughs> My dad sounds like a bear. Oh, should I take I the back piss out of him now? Yeah, you can't go for it. <laughs> It really hurt my feelings. <laughs> um, don't be so dramatic. <laughs> We're used to that. Um, but he'd have the curtains drawn. He would be passed out on the sofa, drink in hand or drink on the floor. There'd be a distinct smell. Oh, yeah. A distinct smell to him. It's uh, a weird smell, isn't it? Yeah. I it can't... sort of seeps out of the... Like it's see out the skin. Mm. Yeah. It, it's straight it's I smelt it once walking past somebody and it sent shivers down my spine. I was in a supermarket and I could just smell it. Instantly took me back. And I thought, oh God, I remember that. But that's how I knew. Um and my my senses to my dad became heightened as a teenager. As a teenager, I knew something was amiss, didn't realise he was addicted to alcohol. But I was starting to piece two and two together and think, okay, he only ever gets like this when he's had a drink. Um, my mum would always be driving. Mum would always be picking us up. It would never be my dad. Um, and I remember always used to say, I always used to say, why do you never drive, dad? He'd had a drink. Yeah. And this was like before five o'clock. It was, it was all day. It was, it was getting worse. The older we got, the worse his drinking got because the more depressed he got, the more depressed, the more anxious he got and the more he didn't want to leave the house. Um, I used to ring ahead sometimes and I'd ring, I'd ring the landline and I'd say to mum, what mood is dad in? And depending on what my mum said, I'd be deciding whether I'm going to go and stay out with my friends, whether I was going home. Um, if my dad picked up the phone, I could tell instantly with one word, whether he'd been drinking. Oh, totally. And you become so, but the, all of this just, I mastered it so well that it became my normal that I didn't realise that internally I was like manifesting anxiety, um, trauma, because some of the some of his drunken episodes were quite traumatic. His outbursts, his argumentative nature to him. He was never violent, but um he was angry and bitter about what had happened in his past, what had caused his trauma. Um he couldn't let it go and he'd always be talking about his past and I think there was something one of our first the first time we ever met up face to face we had a chat about all kinds of stuff just comes out doesn't it when you talk to other people that have been through it you just talk and talk and talk that must have been a real treat because we met in blue water and we were literally browsing yeah. the rails of john lewis going and then my dad died of this and then this happened oh yeah and my dad average... used to write a, load, write a load of notes and leave them everywhere like, me too the average blue water shopper must have wondered what the hell was going on Don't i think it's the us. constant shape shifting you have to do yes in that Okay, am I just going to go upstairs and kind of ignore what's happening? Mm -hmm. Am I going to try and diffuse the situation by messing around? Am I going mm. to say something deliberately antagonistic to almost get that row over and done yes. with that's yes. inevitable? And it's just a bit of a constant jiggle mm. to change your personality to suit somebody else's not even their mood, but somebody else's state. Yeah, I, I think that's 
that's pretty on point that is so I'm always the one to try and just kind of make light of a situation or try and chill it out you know kind of what does it matter or diffuse it yes mm. heightened alert to diffuse the situation but then other you. days I'll just push the button and go come on then let's just do it <laughs> uh, do you know what actually I was probably the same especially when you're a teenager and you're already in like your hormonal your did I? Um, yeah, I did. I had some blazing rows with my dad. Um, and you get more confident, don't you, the older you get? But yeah. I would say I really knew, like really, really knew um, that he had a drink problem when I was in my early 20s. Um, and that is when I went through the stage of Blaming and hating and resenting, um, calling calling him all kinds of things. Um, really hated him as well. I loved him, but I really hated him when he was drinking. So I think for me that came later. I think I spent a lot of time in my teenage years and my twenties just wanting the fun guy back. Mm. And I spent a lot of time trying to facilitate that, kind of meeting up for dinner and just, yeah, you'd get, like, he was still there at that point. Yeah. Um, but towards the end of his life, I would say probably the last 15 years, it was just exhausting. And that guy was got, like, he was not coming back. It's the weirdest thing, isn't it? Because I always knew from a really, really young age that my dad would, I, ju I just waited, I think, from being mm. a teenager for my dad to die in a lot of ways. And yeah. I always knew it would be alcohol-related. I never imagined my dad dying. I, don't, I always used to assume he'd be around forever. And I never, ever, even when we were in the hospital and we're being moved from, um, well, they're moving us in terms of severity. So you're in, you're in majors. And then we're in resus, and then we're in a ward, then we're in intensive care. Even in intensive care, I used to think, oh, this will be his wake-up call. He'll come out of this and he'll go, yep, I need help. And that'll be it, and we'll live happily ever after. Never, ever imagined him dying. Um, I, again, like you, always knew that my dad was in there somewhere. And the older I got, the better I could detach my dad. And I think that's what made it harder for me. I said to somebody recently, actually, that I was, um, I said to a life coach who was having a coaching session with Absolutely Amazing, and I got really emotional and started really crying about my dad. And I said, you know what makes this harder? It's harder because he wasn't a bad man. He was a good man. When he was drunk, he was a pain in the ass I'm not going to deny that and I did hate him when he was drunk but when he weren't and when he was sober that was him and that was my that was like there he is there's Steve there you are like come on like we can do this let's let's get you off let's let's get you better let's get you some support and I think I said to my coach I said you know what would have made it easier for me if my dad was an arsehole if he was an arsehole and I'm not saying I'm not and that sounds like I'm kind of undervaluing or devaluing other people's experiences. But for me, I personally feel that it would have been easier for me if there weren't such that un 
overwhelming amount of love there. I remember, like, it must have been about six or eight months before he died. Um, so he was sober. He got he got sober for a good 16 months before he died. He had a detox, but didn't get any psychological support, didn't follow up with it. And I naively thought, oh, he's not an alcoholic anymore. He's cured. Yay. <laughs> he's yeah. back to normal. And I remember all those feelings of overwhelming love that I had for him as a child. The dad that I remembered as a child was back. And I remember saying that I've got my dad back. And I'll be grateful for those 16 months, eternally grateful for them. But I remember thinking, oh, God, if anything ever happened to him, I don't know what I'd do. I just love him so much. Like he was the kind of dad I could ring up for advice. I could, there'd be zero judgment from him. He was just, I don't know, he was just, he was very, I always say to people, he was very ahead of his time. He was very forward thinking. Um, and he was my biggest advocate. Yeah, no, I didn't really have that. And I don't know whether it's because I hadn't lived with him for a really long time mm. or whether I just had it in my head that he was just a bit crap, really, mm. in a nice way. But I just would never have phoned him for advice. Um, I could only do that when he was sober. Yeah, I just... I didn't have that sort of relationship, mm. you know, and when my husband proposed he'd phone my mum he didn't phone my dad um yeah just different really he just wasn't there in that way he was quite caught up mm -hmm. don't you find it it's funny isn't it because um it's such a nuanced is that the word nuanced nuanced well subject You've learned something i've learned something i've learned how to pronounce nuanced it's such a nuanced subject but yet we relate so deeply. So we can we can speak. I always, other people that just get this, like when I've spoken to you, it's, it's felt like we're talking the same language, but yet our experiences have been so different. And I think that's what makes this so, um, so many different areas we can talk about because it's different for all of us. There is, and there's some things you can only say to somebody who's experienced it, who yeah. isn't going to go, oh, that's an awful thing to say, or, yeah. oh, oh, really? Or, well, can you explain what that feels like? Because actually, when you meet somebody who has lived a similar experience, mm -hmm. there's a lot of unspoken things that you don't have to talk about, oh, and you completely yeah. understand. You know, if I just kind of rocked up to... Somebody went, yeah, actually, in a way, it was really good when my dad died because um, I found that really stressful and I was just sort of really waiting for it to happen. They would just look at you like you were just an awful, yeah. awful person. I actually, I felt relief when my dad died. Oh, yeah, I did. And then I felt guilty for feeling that I relief. mean, it was a bit of a, it was a, bad, a bit of a bad day. <laughs> <laughs> we did warn people that there'd be dark humour. <laughs> <laughs> in the, yeah, I've had better. Um, yeah, it wasn't a great. There was lots of things going mm. on, and the police knocking on doors, yeah. and I was away, and yeah, and um, but even that day, driving home, I said to my husband, "Well, I don't have to, don't have to check my phone now before I go to bed. Don't have to worry." And he said, what do you mean? I said, well, the last thing I do is I check the ringers on my phone because I know 
Mm. He might ring. And I'd been doing that for years. And immediately there was that thing of, oh, well, it's done. And I, cause when you've been waiting such a long time for something to happen, it's almost that, oh, well, this is actually what this looks like. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. Probably hasn't died quite as I expected, but, or this, you know. Yeah. But ultimately, I've been planning for this for a really, really long time. See, I was heartbroken, devastated, but also relieved in the sense that although I'd never expected it, or maybe not expected it, not wanted to think about it or accept it. Maybe I was in denial. Um, but I remember feeling that it was over. Yeah, I remember feeling, oh, I don't have to worry about him. I don't have to hide it anymore. That was That was a big thing. It was almost like, okay, the secret's out now. Secret's out, it's here. Yeah, he was an alcoholic. We could tell the family how he died um, and what we were going through because we we kept it, we internalised it and kept it within. The only people I spoke to about it were my sisters and my mum. Even my husband, I still hid, a, he knew, but I still hid a lot. I didn't want to paint this picture of my dad because of that stigma, so we, we hid it. But it was a relief that when he died, it was over. And, yeah, we could tell people and I didn't have to worry about humiliating him or didn't have to worry about disloyalty. And then I could start my healing process. Yeah, I would agree with that as well. Because I couldn't have done the things I do now mm. or understood what I understand now while he was still alive, mm. I don't think. and I, Because it would have taken a lot for me, you know, if I'd have really drilled into the fact it's an illness, then I'd have had to have felt sorry for him, which I did. I really did. Um, but if I'd have gone down the route of this isn't a choice and it's an illness and he needs this, this and this, then I'd have had to have felt sorry for him and I would have had to have done something about it. Mm. And I didn't feel sorry for him a lot of the time because he wasn't very nice a lot of the time towards the end and it was really hard work. Yeah. towards the end and if I'd have had all that knowledge I would have had to have done more and I just didn't have it in me that's um it's that bit not having it in you it was oh, physically emotionally draining it was all consuming I remember allocating myself certain times to worry about my dad because of how mentally draining it was. The amount of worry that for me manifest. And I remember, I remember doing it. I really developed this level of bitterness and hatred towards him when I had my eldest daughter. I remember looking at her and I remember thinking, I love you so much. I could never do what my dad does. or puts, I couldn't put you through what my dad's putting me through. Am I not enough? Do you not love me enough? Am I, why can't you stop drinking for me? Why can't you stop drinking for your granddaughter? And all of these questions came to me and I remember thinking, like, why are you doing this? And then I remember thinking, okay, this is consuming me. I've got my own family to worry about now. Um, I can't worry about you anymore. So I'm only going to worry about you when I'm seeing you or when I ring you to check in that you're okay. 
if I'm not with you or I'm not seeing him, then I'm not going to worry about him. But all that did was it manifested as something else. And I developed health anxiety, worried incessantly over my own health because I could control that. I couldn't control what was happening to my dad and what I could see happening. Um, but I could control that within me. Um, and that's, yeah, that's how it, um, that's how it affected me. <laughs> I think a lot, like the more conversations you have with other COAs, the more they identify with the whole mm. control freak issue. And I'm definitely that at home with some control freak. Mm. And like to, whether it's I drive the car if we're going out or <laughs> I um, like to book all the holidays oh, and yeah. I like all of the information. I like to be, I like to make the restaurant. And then what I like to actually do is then make that a massive problem that nobody's helped me. And <laughs> And then be really oh. passive aggressive about how I don't get any help while still having a full <laughs> and comprehensive spreadsheet for every event that we go to. Um, yeah, I think a lot of us have a have a thing around controlling yeah. our environment. Oh, 100%. Maybe mine's not as excessive as yours because we both know that I have an ADHD brain. <laughs> and keeping a spreadsheet for anything for me. <laughs> but I... I I can be a bit of a control freak because I look at that and the only reason I can relate to that is because I think I need to make sure I'm doing it because I know then at least it'll get done. I won't get let down um, and I can deal with it and I want to fix it and I want to be in control because yeah. I weren't in control of my dad's drinking. I had... Um, yeah, it's just kind of, I, I don't know why. Why, why is that? <laughs> why? I don't know. I never thought it was my, I don't remember ever thinking it was my fault that he drank. And I don't remember feeling, I did feel he'd chosen it. Okay. I felt he had chosen to drink it, but I didn't feel he'd chosen it over us. I felt second best to it, but I didn't think it was a kind of A or B linear I think I did because I used to give him, give him so many ultimatums. It's drink or me. It's drink or me. Um, and he'd always go to the drink and I could never understand. I always used to say to him, look how much you're like, look at, look at us. Look how much this is affecting us. Please just stop. Just stop, Dad. And I used to say, oh, I said, and I'm, I look back now and I actually feel a little, little bit embarrassed even saying it. I used to say things like, Dad, snap out of it other people have it worse than you do um all the really just unhelpful stuff um and I used to get so angry with him because I used to think you're picking it over us you're choosing mm. that I didn't feel like that but I also never gave an ultimatum and I never had that it's you or mm. you know it's the drink or us and I think probably because I was too scared of what the answer would have been yeah so in a way, mm. I actually enabled it. I just wanted, I just wanted my dad to sort of be my dad, and if that meant he was drinking, you know, I used to buy him alcohol for Christmas. Yeah, which is well, it's done now. But talking because, about alcohol at Christmas, 
and this is how when we said at the beginning of the podcast how normal like things just become so santa would get a glass of whiskey for christmas every christmas eve is that not normal no apparently it's not oh Whiskey, mince pie, and a carrot for Rudolph. And I remember the first yeah. time I did it with my husband for our little girls. I went, right, oh, I said, I need to go and get a bottle of whiskey. He went, what? What are you talking about? I went, you know, Daddy, whiskey for Santa. And he'd look at me like, what are you talking about? Whiskey? Since when does Santa have whiskey, Mummy? Because Santa will get drunk riding that sleigh. And I'd look at him like... Did you never leave whiskey out for Santa? No, we always did. No, it's milk, apparently. Otherwise, Santa will get too drunk. Hmm. <laughs> That's <laughs> no revelations. <laughs> <laughs> so I know, I thought that was like a traditional thing. I thought that was Santa gets whiskey and a mince pie, but apparently not. Oh. So, it's another it, childhood. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news. <laughs> <laughs> if you st- was you still leaving whiskey out for Santa? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Our dad's lied to us. <laughs> okay, great. Um, but yeah, I just I just assumed that was normal. It might be, but then it anyway. was. But then it was, and there'll be other households where it is normal because that's it's not indicative of a problem. I mean, it's kind of one no. of those things where you go, well, actually, maybe it's <laughs> just another excuse. It was my dad. That was an excuse for my dad to have a glass of whiskey. That was my dad's excuse. Wow, his favourite drink. Mm. I don't think there's any breathalysers <laughs> from the North Pole. <laughs> I suppose there is that thing, though, not that Father Christmas driving a sleigh, but things that did happen, i.e. kind of being driven in a car or yeah. I can now look back and think, my God, that was so ridiculous. Oh, my dad used to fear the police. It was, but, so you much, know, as kids, getting caught kind of in driving. the car, <laughs> but you put your child in a car. Mm. Yeah. And they're the things that I've probably am slightly incredulous about. Ah, uh, yeah, like he, you know, we went on a couple of holidays with my dad, and after my parents separated, and he was just drunk for the whole time. We could have left the hotel, and now I sort of, you know, looking back on it, I'm a bit uncomfortable with some of those things. Yeah, yeah, I relate to that because I wouldn't do that. To my kids. And then it leaves a, a taste of bitterness, doesn't it? Um, but then it all boils back down to the secrecy. And the secrecy manifested because of the... Are we recording? I'm oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Edit that bit out as well. One four, one four eight one. One six four. <laughs> Your hand is literally just going to fit. Um, what was I saying? <laughs> this is our first podcast. <laughs> We're going to make mistakes. Possibly the last. Um, yeah. Um, what was we saying? About it being a secret. Yes. It, that was it, wasn't it? I mean, definitely, yeah, things happened that you did keep a secret. Not because you were even... I was never told to keep it a secret. But things... 
you just never really talked about because you could see that it was the unspoken secret. Yes. It was an unspoken secret. We knew there was an issue. We were in denial. My dad was in denial. We were in denial. I knew that deep down, if I'm being really brutally honest, I knew subconsciously that unless my dad stopped and got help, there was only going to be one way out. And that was, and I used to always say this, and this is really, really morbid and really depressing, but I'd say there's only one way out for my dad and that's in a box. Because if he doesn't stop, that's what will happen. Um, but I, it was too, if, if I'm being brutally honest, it was too hard to confront and it was too hard to deal with. So I brushed it under the carpet. Yeah. Which is why now I've learned from that and which is why now I make such a point if I'm ever faced with something where I think this is wrong or we need to deal with this, I deal with it head on. And this is why now I'm so brutally honest and open about absolutely everything because I think we made that mistake with my dad. We kept that secret. My dad kept that secret. And I know that sounds like I'm putting blame on myself, but... I feel like I do take a little bit of accountability. I feel like if we were in this situation again now, I wouldn't feel so... um, I wouldn't feel the pressure to keep such a big secret and not ask for help. Like, if I went through this now with another family member, I'd I'd know what to do differently. Um, And I think keeping that secret for us and not talking about it was... Not, mate, I don't know. I don't know what I'm trying to... <laughs> well, we'll do it differently because everybody's got the benefit of hindsight. You know, mm. we've got the benefit of hindsight and there are things I would do differently. But ultimately, I could have done all of the research in the world and I could have lined up all the help in the world and I could have mm. remortgaged my house and kidnapped him in the night and put him into a rehab centre and I could have... <laughs> Done, you know, all sorts of things. I could have done that. And, you know, we had, I had family members offer to help us do that at one point. But the reality is, he didn't want to engage. He not didn't want to, he couldn't engage with it Mm. and wasn't ready to engage with it. So it wasn't my fault that I couldn't control him. You know, I I couldn't control what was happening to him. Only he had the authority to do that. And in a way, keeping the secret meant protecting him Mm. in some ways. Protecting him both from judgment of other people, but also actually just being a bit kind to him because he knew he wasn't an idiot. He, He knew. And for me... Part of the kind of rocking up with my kids every six weeks and having a pizza and just ignoring this massive elephant in the corner of Pizza Express. Yeah. Actually, was keeping the secret, but it was also being kind because, you know, and equally if he'd come and said, I'm ready, he'd have had everybody's support and everybody's backing, but that didn't happen for him. Mm. But I couldn't have just gone and kept constantly berating him, both for him and for me. It would have been too much. Yeah. I did that, though. 
there was times where I was always berating him. Um, towards the end, I didn't. Towards the end, I did have more compassion and empathy. Um, and I really understood then that, okay, this is an issue. We need to deal with this. Um, but before we could properly deal with it, it was too late. Now I understand all of that. Now I understand that um, there was nothing I could have done unless he wanted the support and he wanted the help. Um, I understand now that I was equally affected and I had every right to speak to a therapist or anybody to offload, offload all of these conflicting emotions because that's what they are I speak to a lot of people and I sometimes listen to myself talk and think god I'm contradicting myself but it that's what it is there's conflicts of emotion all the time um and so many different emotions oh yeah you can absolutely love that parent but also be so full of hate for them at the same time yeah you can not want other people to judge them and take that really personally. But judge but them yourself. so <laughs> judgmental yourself. Yeah. You can be absolutely devastated at the way that you see this going, but then also, frankly, a little bit pleased when it's finally all over. Yeah, 100%. You can So it's just a very, very complex situation for which there's no right or wrong for any individual... And as you say, just completely... Com and that can be within the space of seconds. Like yeah. I've been sitting here already in however many minutes, one point thinking, God, he was a dickhead. But also, oh, yeah, no, he was a great guy. Because, yeah. But actually, can't you say that about a lot of people, regardless of whether they're suffering from an addiction or not? <laughs> you know, you can... <laughs> yeah, no, I get it. I get it. I absolutely get it. It's... um. But then it's equally, it's a roller coaster of emotion. Yes, but then lots of people who don't grow up with a parent who has an addiction, they probably still hate their parents at times, but for different reasons. But just not in the same way. You know, my kids hate it when I tell them to pick their socks off the floor, but that's yeah. not the same as I'm really. Mm. upset because actually you didn't yeah. turn up that day I had my tonsils out there are, there are degrees of it yeah yeah that did happen to me my dad forgot to come to the hospital and I had my tonsils out how did that make you feel I don't think I hadn't really remembered this story because he drunk well he did that yeah right mm. so had my tonsils out my mum took me my parents went together at this point and then yeah, my dad just wasn't there, either when I went to have them out or afterwards. And then he just turned up about 10 o'clock at night to my hospital room, which is me in the room, absolutely shit-faced, passed out in the chair, and then kind of woke up and then drove home. There's so much wrong with that story. <laughs> when... <laughs> There. Yes, social services feel like that. <laughs> that happens. That's a thing. Yeah, do you know what? There's actually? so much wrong with that story. Yeah. But I don't even know where to start with it. My dad would turn up. My, credit due where credit's due, my dad would turn up to every single special event, a special occasion, 
whether he was sober or not was another question. I remember my graduation. Oh, my God, I was so angry with him. He, um, I only had two tickets for my graduation. So my mum and dad came. And my dad turned up to this cathedral absolutely... It was so busy and I weren't allowed my phone on me, I weren't allowed my handbag, so my mum took my phone and my handbag. Anyway, I got up, collected my certificate, had my photo taken, could see my dad was really emotional, a little bit teary-eyed. And as soon as I walked off that stage, he got out of the pew and walked down the aisle and out of the cathedral. And I remember looking at him going, oh, he's done it again. He's going, he's leaving early. And... I was so mad because mum scurried after him and followed him and took my handbag and my phone. So at the end of the graduation ceremony, everyone was outside being welcomed by their family. My dad had wandered off. Mum had followed after him and I was on my own. Nobody was there and I didn't have a phone <laughs> to contact anyone. Later found out that because I'd berated my dad so much and lectured him so much about being sober for the event, he didn't have a drink all day. So he was shaking and he was physically dependent on it. So withdrawal effects were kicking in. But I was so mad, so, so cross with him. Yeah, and that's understandable. That was a massive day mm -hmm. for you. He was present, but he wasn't. But you should be able to expect to graduate with your parents there clapping you like. That's yeah. a reasonable expectation mm. that you had. So that isn't, you didn't do anything wrong in that instance. Neither did mm. he because he was so dependent at that point. Yeah, it was painful. But I it think. is interesting to look back now on every big event or family mm. event and every single one of those stories is influenced by my dad. I can often not remember who else was there for some of these things. Just worrying about your dad all the time. But my memories are all tied in with, oh, no, he looked awful that day. And then he actually he got really drunk and then he did this. Or, oh, no, he, looked, he was on great form that day. Or, oh, actually, that was the first time that he'd had to use a walking stick in public and people hadn't mm. seen him for a while because every single event... I can look back on and that is one of the most mm. it's sort of overpowering memories. Well, they're tainted, aren't they? Yeah. They're tainted with the worry and the anxiety of, have they been drinking? But, you know, going back to the secret thing, at weddings he'd only be put on the table with... Fam, you know, sort of family members mm -hmm. who would just kind of... And now, actually, we all just sort of shrugged our shoulders and let him get on with it because what was the point? Yeah. I, know, so I, I was constantly trying to fix things. Const I used to think I could fix him, I could save him and we'd live happily ever after. Um, I planned my entire life around what can I do to save my dad down to what I did at university what I did as a job, I used to think that if I could earn enough money, then I could pay for him to do a really expensive rehab or detox facility and get him fixed, or I could make him proud and make him happy. Um, yeah, it was 
No, I think it's all all tainted with... But it's funny, isn't it, how it affects all of us so differently, but yet we all felt very similar emotions, very similar feelings. I mean, he'd had a couple of other long-term relationships and hadn't really... One of which had sort of taken him to live in Oxfordshire, where we live in Surrey. So it sort of, and he hadn't ever really asked the question, "Is that okay with you guys?" Or he wasn't. I did feel he didn't always consider us in decisions he made. He did what he wanted to do, and everybody else had to just Mm. follow along with it. You know, oh, I'm getting married, or yeah, there was never a a consultation or a consideration of how that would impact on my brother and I. So I never really did the same. I've never, I've always kind of just done what we wanted to do. I've always considered other family members Mm. in decisions we've made. Um, But, you know, I lived abroad for five years. I had my daughter abroad. He never came to visit. And I knew that he wouldn't. And actually... I would have found that so struck. God, if he'd have said, I've booked a ticket, I'm coming for a month. <laughs> God. <laughs> I don't, don't know Do what you know, I'd have done. Actually, I kind of, in a way, relate to that. There'd be occasions where mum would say, oh, you know, your dad's not coming. And I think, oh, good. I don't have to worry. Yeah. Or we can enjoy this event without tipping, um, tiptoeing on eggshells or... Worrying about how drunk he's going to get. So, but don't you find, I don't know about you, but for me, I feel like I've spent my entire childhood and teens and young adulthood on heightened levels, in heightened levels of anxiety. Yes, but I didn't realise that at the time. Yeah, because it became so normal. We just lived, and that, that, was, that was just normal. Yeah, definitely. But I didn't know, that, and I, I only know that now, looking back. Mm. Things that other people took for granted and didn't really see. I saw danger at every every turn, yes. every event. So I would, um, I, d- I used to drink as a teenager. I used to smoke, but I've never taken drugs because I would die. That was like my default mm. position. If I do that... I'll be the one who dies, right? Or (laughs) I would never went, I I had an ex-boyfriend who really liked kind of going to clubs in London and stuff. And I would never do that because I perceived that other people's unpredictable behaviour always used to cause me so much anxiety. So I knew if I went clubbing in London, Mm -hmm. somebody would get stabbed in front of me and then I'd have to deal with that. Or, you know, or um, a drunk driver would crash into the crowd while we were in the queue. Or anything... That's that's our our ability to catastrophise everything. Literally (laughs) sense danger. And I'm in in a crowd situation, even now... And constantly scanning the crowd, looking for the one who's going to go rogue. It's hypervigilant. And how am I going to get out of that? You're hypervigilant. I'm exactly the same. Oh, it's that risk assessing. Yeah. You're, I said it at the beginning. I used to risk assess every time we'd go out as a family. Whenever my dad was there, there'd be a risk assessment. <laughs> like, and I st- and we still do it naturally now. We risk assess. Whenever we're out and about or whatever situation we're in, 
and catastrophize everything because we never knew when or because growing up was so unpredictable we never knew what to expect no and it's really interesting so um i went skiing last weekend just need to it's just what you're doing sorry yeah. um <laughs> Right. Oh, okay. Come on. Come on. Back. Six Oop. adults. So three couples. Yeah. Six adults. And the other five are much, much better than I am. And I'm quite a rubbish skier because I'm quite cautious and mm -hmm. I don't really love it. And um, I was explaining to them, we were on this cable car, and I was just explaining. They're like filled with excitement. They're going on a black. They're going on a red. They're going to go at like 80 kilometres an hour. It's going to be, oh you know, God. really totes gnarly <laughs> and all of that. And I'm just <laughs> scanning like the little baby green run going, well, I could die there. Or that looks like a bit of a drop. Um, so that's a danger. And I was trying to explain to them what I was seeing when they're all just psyched for the top because they've got no perception that anything disastrous is going to happen. And I'm literally going to get, you know, in my head, I'm going to die on this green run. No, I'm sorry. But it was, really, <laughs> it was really weird because I was explaining to them what that looks like for me. Mm. And you could just see on their faces they had, and they just said, but we have no, we had no idea that's what, it's like for you. And I still remember that's every situation. Mm. Yeah. I, I get I'm that. I'm really fun to hang out with. Oh, I relate to it. I'm exactly the same. God, like, if I, any kind of holiday, any family outing, anything, even going to a theme park, I'll be like, the ride's going to break down or it's going to crash or we're going to have a car accident. Yeah. All this is going to happen. Why do we do that? I don't know. We need to get a expert on to talk about hypervigilance. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I feel like we're all, it's fight or flight. We're constantly in um, fight mode. No, yeah, I don't Hyper know. Hypervigilance. I mean, I was on flight mode skiing last week, inadvertently <laughs> a couple of times. <laughs> I went skiing once with my husband and um, we broke up on that skiing holiday. <laughs> Note to self, you don't have your spouse teach you how to ski. God, no, that must have been a disaster. Oh, it was a disaster. I got off the, um, I got off this little run or whatever it is, this little ski lift. And I launched my skis, took my boots off <laughs> and walked, walked in the snow in my ski socks. <laughs> We're finished. <laughs> he went, oh, I'm never coming skiing with you again. I went, good. <laughs> it I was petrified. I was absolutely petrified and went down a blue run on my bum because I kept thinking I was going to either face plant or die. <laughs> but see, I can look at you and go, well, that's ridiculous. It was never going to happen. <laughs> but I completely identify with that as a... <sighs> As a thing. And I, I had said to my husband, not about skin, but I just said, but the difference is you never, you were never waiting for a phone call to tell you your parent was dead. Yeah. Mm. He had no, he doesn't have his parents anymore. But 
he was so shocked when it happened. I was like, oh, no, I've been planning. Well, yeah. I've been planning for this for <laughs> a spreadsheet about my dad dying somewhere. But when I... You always sort of know abstractly that your likelihood is your parents will die, you know, mm. you will lose your parents. But, yeah, really different to being completely shell-shocked and taken by surprise when it happens versus, oh, no, well, I knew, I've known for 20 years. Anticipating that, this... that phone call. Yeah. I get that. Uh, yeah. I and I knew that phone call was coming. I, I knew it was coming. And um you don't want to. You want to you want to pretend it's not happening. But um you're on edge. I remember um hearing ambulances go past and I would think they go into my dad. Has he passed out? Is he okay? Um, you're constantly preempting it. And then it just transfers onto something else in life. And we become really fun at parties. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. People's reactions to it are weird, though, aren't they? So I don't. I choose not to drink anymore, which is a really good decision for me. And that's more about me than mm. about my dad. And people generally are fine with that and don't ever... So if you go somewhere and you say, oh, no, I don't drink, you'll have a soft yeah. drink and you'll just be chatting normally while they're having a drink. And then if you say, oh, actually, um, in my spare time for fun, what I like to do is go and talk to people about... Growing, you know, well, you know, I'll always say oh, I volunteer for NACOA yeah. and I'm a trained speaker for them and I do this, this, this and this. And then it becomes a bit awkward all of a sudden <laughs> because they sort of are holding a drink. I don't really know what to do with that. And then it's that... I don't know, the whole culture around kind of, you know, mummy's having a drink and... Oh, the mummy wine culture. Yeah. I'm not judging that. At all, and this is what I try and say, but there's always that kind of funny five minutes where you sort yeah. of say, oh, well, I, you know, why my dad died due to his alcohol addiction. It's like a real conversation. <laughs> <We're>, <laughs> this must make some people feel really awkward. And this is why we talk, we, we talk very openly about what we've been through. We're almost kind of desensitised from it. I yeah. feel we're desensitised from it. Yeah. I remember in the funeral home, God, <laughs> organised my dad's funeral with my brother, which is just a very weird experience anyway. Yeah. And we're sort of waiting for a grown-up to tell us what to, you know, to come in and tell us what to do. Mm. I was 42, he was 40. We were the grown-ups, it turned yeah. out. And they were asking these questions. They said, oh, did, um, did your dad have any pacemaker or kind of any you know like a hip replacement or anything we need to know my brother went no he said but uh he did drink a lot so you probably want to bear that in mind when you set the fire no <laughs> oh my god <laughs> oh, highly flammable yeah. um, oh, no. don't know if you need to <laughs> don't it rem <laughs> this reminds me of a time when um 
I I'm exactly the same as you. So I choose not to drink, partly because I hate the taste of it and I hate um, the smell. Reminds me, it just triggers some kind of trauma response. And I remember being at a party and I was being pressured to have a drink and they kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Oh, don't be boring. Come on, just have one. And in the end, I kind of just thought, I know exactly how I'm going to handle this. I turned around and went, oh, um, oh, no, 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 I don't drink anymore. What do you mean you don't drink anymore? That's why. Like, come on, don't be boring. And I'd look at them. And I knew it was going to make them feel really awkward and really bad. But I went, (laughs) I thought this is going to be really funny. (laughs) Straight faced. I went, (laughs) I went, alcohol killed my dad. (laughs) And their face, they looked and they went, "Uh, uh," I went, yeah, so, you know, I just... Every time I smell it or I come across it, it triggers this trauma response. I think I've got PTSD. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Do you get invited out much? <laughs> and they just looked so awkward. <laughs> like, and it was like, oh, okay, do you want a soft drink? <laughs> like, <laughs> but, yeah, note to self. <laughs> I, like, I am so, I'm so, obviously, I'm so open now. And so honest about what's happened because I think that maybe I'm rebelling against the secret. I'm rebelling against that secret. It was a secret. It's not a secret anymore. And I have this kind of hope that other people don't have to live in such silence and such fear of judgment and discrimination so let's have these honest conversations. But let's the talk alcohol about it. thing's really weird, isn't it? If you were at a party and someone was doing a class A drug or even smoking or mm. vaping, you would not oh, I know. be kind of backed into a corner where you have to kind of say something mm. really shocking yeah. just to not Yeah, it's almost like it. back off, leave me alone. I don't want to have a drink. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. You won't, you won't say, oh, God, just have one cigarette. Come on, just have one. Don't be so boring. Smoke with me. And I think that is where the secret or a lot of the issues come from in that it's an incredibly socially acceptable yes. drug. And I'm not here to demonise alcohol or to have any kind of judgment on what people choose to do in their relationship with that. But I think that is why we're all encouraged to drink. Yeah, I agree with that. We are bombarded with um, kind of advertising around that and every party involves alcohol and birthday cards revolve around mm-hmm. the fact it's your birthday, have a drink, etc. It's highly glamorised. It's highly glamorised and it's highly socially acceptable and the vast majority of people can have a relationship of their choosing with alcohol within what they deem mm-hmm. appropriate for them. However, when you come over the other side of that into an addiction you have to keep that a secret yeah yeah it's almost like there's no you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't with alcohol I find there's so many mixed messaging around it um it's highly you are right it's highly glamorized it's highly socially acceptable um it's highly addictive 
it's one of only a few substances that causes physical dependence. Um, meanwhile, cigarettes are covered with a screen. There's loads of graphic warning labels attached to them. We're told about the damages of smoking on others, but nobody talks about the damages of alcohol addiction on the person addicted or the family around them, their loved ones. Um, we very openly talked about alcohol addiction causing heightened anxieties and heightened levels of hypervigilance. And that's because that's a consequence of alcohol. But talking about that and talking about it openly, because of the stigma attached to it, is deemed a, tab is, is deemed a taboo. Mm. And it's that really hard thing, isn't it, of the vast majority, in, you know, in terms of growing up, the vast majority of other people's parents drank mm -hmm. alcohol. So it's a really grey area where you don't have the knowledge of when too much is too much. Yeah. Everyone, you know, there's all these, everyone's mum drinks Prosecco, for example. But actually, if your mum drank Prosecco and then it really affected her behaviour and affected you... But then if you went to a, if we went to school and said, oh, my mum drank too much last night, your peers would go, yeah, mine does that sometimes. But you're not actually sharing the experience, you're just sharing the bare facts, which is... Mm. And then you're made to feel like it's normal or that... And then actually if things are happening to you that aren't happening to other people, that's where the secrecy starts. Because you don't want to go and tell on your parents... Do you? Because you're so worried of people talking to other people, of your peers kind of finding out and taking the mick out of you, or your teachers finding out and then involving mm. another service, you know, social, social services. services yeah. Or And actually the reality is that that probably wouldn't happen until you get to, you know, a, a really bad place. But you're so scared of people judging you, judging your parents, trying to get involved. My dad would have gone nuts if I'd gone to school and said, oh, actually, I think my dad's an alcoholic. Oh, God, mine would have done as well. But I, I absolutely... And that's where the secret starts. Yeah, I agree with you. I used to... I was terrified of anybody finding out because I thought they'd involve social services. And it weren't just me, it was my, I'd worry about my younger sisters. How does that implicate them? How does it implicate my mum? What if I am being dramatic? What if I have gotten it wrong? What if he isn't an alcoholic? And what if, because where he was in denial, I was in denial. I questioned my own sanity at, at times. And I think it's a, it's a pretty big bold statement to make about somebody you need to be absolutely dead certain that I'm right there weren't the education there weren't the awareness I didn't know what symptoms I was looking for um if I'd have known about NACOA then like I do now then NACOA for the sake of the listeners um is the National Association for Children of Alcoholics it's a charity it's a wonderful charity um Amy and I both volunteer for NACOA 
um, if I'd have known about them then, I would have had more education, more awareness of what was going on. Um, and I might have been able to seek help for myself and maybe try and encourage my dad to seek that help and support. But ultimately, we really needed that help. Yeah. We needed that support. We were confused. We were young. We were um, we were children. Yeah, but not even sure. when I was a child, as in, you know, the, one of their taglines is you are you are not alone. You certainly felt like it. Absolutely. That's, mm. you know, you did because you did feel alone because you weren't having the conversations with other people because you didn't know that other people were experiencing what you were experiencing and you were too scared to ask mm -hmm. for help for fear of what would happen as a consequence. And I actually only found Nakoa after my dad died. and Same. But within, you know, within days of my dad dying... I had come across this charity, which has been absolutely life-changing. And it was the first time that I realised that what I was had a label. And I know we've talked about whether their labels are negative mm -hmm. or positive. For me, identifying as a COA, as a child of an alcoholic, has been incredibly healing and empowering and it, has made me feel less alone. Yeah, I agree. And with it everything. works for me. Mm. And the very first thing I came across was their um, Instagram page and then went on the website. And on the website, you've got the personal experience pages. And I know you've written mm -hmm. a couple of those, as have I. And just reading them, going, oh my goodness, it wasn't just my dad. Or, Oh, okay, that wasn't actually, that was my dad's illness, not my dad yeah. doing those things. Yes. Or, oh, okay, so it was okay that actually I'm pretty psyched that it's all over. You know, all of mm. those things were incredible because even I've got a sibling, he's brilliant. He's dealt with it very differently to me. He yeah. probably has very different feelings about things that we've experienced. I wouldn't know. We've never had those conversations. Yeah. I so. prefer to do podcasts. <laughs> tell Just everyone how I feel. Rather than have that slightly <laughs> awkward conversation with my closest blood relative. Um. No, but do you know what do you know what I think it does? It helped Nakoa and listening to other COAs and listening to other loved ones and reading those stories. For me, it helped validate my experience. It helped me make sense of the entire situation, helped me feel less alone. It gave a... Um, it helped me understand what we'd been through and helped me understand my dad a little bit better. And, you know, the other thing that I found really helpful is talking to... I mean, I'm incredibly close with Sober Dave, on um, Sober Dave Instagram, if name you haven't drop. heard <laughs> name drops Sober Dave, <laughs> um, really, really super close to him. I've been able to ask Dave questions that I didn't get the opportunity to ask my dad. Yeah, because you did that. You did the COA week last year where you yes. were asking those questions. I asked. Yeah, I asked him things like, "Why wasn't I enough? Was it my fault, or why couldn't he just stop?" 
And he could answer all of that. And it's community and it's open conversations and it's relationships like that that help you make sense of your own experience. It helps validate those emotions and it helps you make sense of everything. And that is an invaluable part of healing. Um, I feel like now between you and I, <laughs> we have had so many conversations where we talk so blasé about it <laughs> that it becomes, some people could be like, oh, you've been really disrespectful, you're making jokes. But, you know... That- there'll always be people that think, because that think you're either being disrespectful or you shouldn't be talking about it or you should be acting in a certain way. And that's absolutely fine for them to have those opinions. For you and I, doing what we do and having these conversations, yes, to be, we have become a little bit blasé about it and we do make some really, really <laughs> terrible, terrible <laughs> jokes. <laughs> well, but that, that helps <laughs> us and that's not for anybody to judge. We won't... Mm. You know, equally, I wouldn't judge somebody who chose to never speak about it. That wouldn't be my choice. Mm-hmm. You should have seen my husband's face, though, when we were on that call last week. And he was in the background shaking his head going, I can't believe he just said that. Like, it weren't me, it was Amy. <laughs> <laughs> She's bad influence on me. <laughs> she brings out the dark humour in me. <laughs> but that's how I have always coped with it. That is... What I do, and that absolutely wouldn't suit everybody else. And my, my dad would laugh his head off at that, though. I don't know how my dad would feel about all this. I think he'd be pretty pissed off. I mean, oh, no, I think he'd be... Yeah. Re- no, that's not true. I think he'd be proud. I mean, I've finally achieved something. He'd be waiting enough. Do you know what, actually? <laughs> have, like, when, a proper when, job. Or... When people say, oh, how do you think your dad would be, like, with you doing the work you're doing now? And I go... Oh, he'd be so proud. Like, he'd be really proud of me. And they look and they nod and they go, yeah, I agree. And then part of me goes, oh, he's probably really, like, pissed off with me right now. (laughs) I've shared a lot of secrets. (laughs) Again, we've shared the secret. (laughs) But the other side of that, actually, is that being as open and brutally honest as I've been has actually helped people. And that's why I do it. I've put I've put myself in situations where I've talked that openly that I've been scrutinised for it. It's my truth. That it, it's my truth. It's what it's. I'm not going to be apologetic for my experience and how I felt. They were my feelings. Um, and expressing those feelings has helped other people make sense of theirs and helped validate their feelings and help them feel less alone. Um. And I'm a big believer in, we've been through something crap. We've been through something awful. And I'd rather something good come from it. And I'd rather our experiences go on to initiate other conversations that help other people in our situation who are going through what we were going through five years ago, maybe, make sense of what's happening to them. Yeah, I agree. And and that's why, that is why we talk... Like we do, we guess, are we desensitive to it? Yeah, maybe so, because we talk about it so often. Are we healed? No. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> but do I, we need well, a lot of therapy still? Always, yeah. definitely. <laughs> <laughs> <But> <laughs> as you know, I am um, 
kind of in the process. I volunteer at local secondary school and I'm helping them set up a really long term project supporting children who are growing up with Mm. alcohol problems in their home. And it's a really incredible opportunity and I genuinely feel really, really privileged to be able to do it and doing it kind of alongside the NACOA training that I've done and using Mm. what I've learned there to help train the teachers and to support the students. And part of what I do is I'm having these kind of one-to-one sessions with some students who've come forward, um, you know, to say they're living with that. And exactly what you said, a couple of them, they come in and they've never, ever spoken to somebody about it. And so I'm very clear, this is just us chatting and... Mm. I'm not judging your parents and I'm not going to make you feel bad about the fact that your parent or any of those things. I can see that you love them and but I'm just here to chat. And it's the first time they've ever sort of actually been able to go, yeah, no, I just just really wish my dad was dead sometimes. And I go, oh, yeah, that's OK, <laughs> because yeah. that's horrible. You know, I just wish my parent didn't live with me. I used to wish my dad dead when I was 15. I remember Don't all saying fifteen year olds. No, but genuinely thinking it, I remember there was one time where oh, awful argument had broken out and I remember saying to my mum, Why can't you just leave him? Like, look what he's doing to us. And I remember thinking and we went out in the car and I remember pulling back up thinking, Oh, wouldn't it life be a lot simpler if he weren't around anymore? I hated saying that out loud. Felt really embarrassed for thinking that felt really ashamed of myself for thinking that but that was the reality and they were my feelings yeah and I can't imagine how difficult that must have been for my mum my mum was in a catch-22 and she would say to me your dad weren't always like this Sarah he weren't this isn't your dad um and what do you do in that situation (laughs) and what's made what's so difficult about it and we said it earlier on we know they're still in there. Yeah. And when people, some people have got that, um, I know some people incredibly brave who can walk away. And I think that's so setting a very clear boundary and protecting themselves. And I admire that. I really do admire that. Um, I couldn't do that. And for some people, that's not realistic. Um, and my mum... Yeah, she did. She was in such a catch-22 situation. I speak to so many people that are in my mum's situation and they'll say to me, what do you think I should do? Do you think, um, what would you have liked your mum to have done? No, I can't answer that. I, I, I cannot answer that because this is such a nuanced subject. It's such a, it's unique for all of us. We're all in very different circumstances. And this is what's so painfully difficult that, it's okay to have all of these feelings. It's it's You're probably feeling something that we're all feeling and that's okay. And it's okay to talk about that to somebody you trust. Um, but it's different for all of us. I think being the other parent of a COA must be incredibly difficult. Yeah, I could, I could leave when I was 19. I could leave the family home and not have to um, live with them anymore. I just think... Parenting a child who has a parent with an alcohol addiction, regardless of whether you're still with that person or you're not, must just be 
really, really tough because, mm. you know, you might have to make really difficult decisions about whether your child still has contact with that parent or you might kind of drop them off knowing or feeling that they're not perhaps safe but wanting them to maintain a relationship. It's, as you say, every situation is unique. Mm. But I think parenting your way through that must be so, so difficult. I can't even, <clears throat> excuse me, I can't even imagine. Um, all I know, at 15, I think my mum was, if if, if my mum would have kicked my dad out like I was asking her to, he would have probably died sooner. Um, and we'd probably have resented her for that. Exactly, that's what I mean, you can't you're win. You're damned if you do, yeah. you're damned if you don't. Mm. And you thought that for... You know, maybe an hour, maybe a day, maybe you thought it repeatedly over a period of time, but that was just representative of where you were on that day. And exactly that, if your mum had gone, yeah, let's just kick him out on the streets or mm. let's move away, you're still your dad and you still cared for him yeah. and you still were treading that line of wanting to look after him but feeling really frustrated and... yeah. Um, it's hard mm. it's hard there's no sugarcoating it. it it's hard but that's where again that's with if we're looking at the parenting side again that's another secret you know if you've got a partner living with an addiction and you've got kids you're going to be trying to protect your kids which means you're going to cover up that behavior because you mm. don't want anything to happen so you're going to start keeping you just keep bringing people more and more yeah. people into this secret don't yeah. you and nobody really breaks ranks on it. You know, everyone knew my dad was an alcoholic. You know, again, thinking back to my wedding or my brother's wedding, everybody knew. Just didn't want to admit it. And didn't want to do anything... Do anything about it? No. Mm. It, it was easier to ignore it. But also, I just think the impact on children, or the yeah, the impact on me as a child was never discussed because it was just kind of heads down, probably take the piss, sometimes be a bit upset, sometimes mm. seem really, really fine with it. Um, and I guess support services weren't available in the same yeah. way. I think things have changed for the better. I think um, there's a movement happening. I think there's um, more awareness now than there was even five years ago. And I think that's remarkable. And I think that um, paves way for more open and honest conversations. Um, and I think a big part of stopping the secrecy is to destigmatize alcohol use disorder. Um, and make it, <laughs> make it as easy as saying to somebody, I've stopped smoking. I don't think we're there yet. We're not but, there yet. You know, in but terms of kind of improved understanding around mental health, mm. as you say, in the last kind of five years or so, oh, we will get increased. there. Mm -mm. But I still can't hand on heart imagine any kid walking into school and going, yeah, no, I've had a bit of a rubbish night because my parents are now colic. And mm. I just don't see that happening currently. No, no, neither do I. And that's why the conversations we're having... And the work of NACOA and other um, agencies is so important. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a wrap. 
Do you see anyone still listening? I don't know. How long have we been talking? Hours. (laughs) 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 Absolutely hours. We'll find out the mics weren't on in a minute. (laughs) I'll have to repeat all of it again. (laughs) I don't think I've got it in me. No, neither have I. I think that would be quite nice to restart. Yeah. You've been listening to Sarah and Amy, the Children of Alcoholics podcast. If any of the things we've been talking about resonates with you and you want further help, please contact NACOA at www.nacoa.org.uk. There you will find a wealth of information, support and advice. And remember, you are not alone.